We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. of you today. Uh, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but I do just want to say thanks to Brian Rodman for uh, creating the artwork for so many of our uh, sermon series. Uh, So I hope you all have enjoyed that. Uh, Today's uh, fits our passage very well uh, with Cain holding a rock. Uh, And so uh, very thankful for uh, Brian and all those others who serve uh, in so many ways in our church and make this such a special place to worship God together. Uh, we are in a series called The Fall, looking at Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Um, and so we've been looking at sin's entrance into the world and how it's affected us and our lives and how it has broken everything that we see around us, including us, leaving us in need of a redeemer. And as we've been looking at Genesis chapter 3 and today Genesis chapter 4, I think it's important for us to pause and just ask, why would we look at this? Why would we spend our summer looking at Genesis 3 through 11, looking at what sin is, how sin has entered our world, what has gone wrong with our world and in us? Because it's not really a real positive thing, is it? It's, it's kind of a, a, a negative message that we're looking at right now. We're looking at where things went wrong, where things went bad, both in the world and in us. And, and sometimes we, we, we walk throughout life and, and, and you know, it, it just it leaves us feeling, you know, down or angry or upset because life is hard. Life in a Genesis 3 world is difficult. And, and sometimes we're, we're tempted to think whenever we gather as, as believers, maybe, you know, we just want to encourage one another because life is so hard. And we should do that. We should get together and encourage each other. The, the, the Bible, in fact, encourages us. You know, the Bible commands us to encourage one another. It says, encourage the faint-hearted. But it also offers rebuke and correction, and it also shows us things about ourselves that maybe we're not willing to look at. And so we're tempted to think of church as an opportunity to just kind of fill up our tank, get some encouragement for the week, and then we go back out and, you know, the week kind of beats on us and drains us a little bit, and then we're hopeful that next week we can get our tank full enough again to where we can face another week. And we keep telling ourselves that if, if, if we'll just focus on our own self-esteem, if we'll, if we'll just focus on being positive, if we'll just focus on the good things in us, then life will get better. There's this, there's this you-centered gospel out there that, that says that what has gone wrong with us is the way that we feel about ourselves, that, that what has gone wrong with us is our self-esteem, and that what we need most is just a boost. 
And we can find this teaching in every self-help book that we encounter in the bookstore. We can find it even on TV from preachers and teachers who claim to be Christians preaching the gospel, preaching the same message that says what is most important in your life is you, and what has gone wrong in your life is how you view yourself. And if you would just think more highly of yourself, then life would be better. Life would be filled with more joy. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we believe that message, it's crippling. When we, when we read those self-help books and, and we're encouraged the whole way through, we even laugh and, and we have fun, and we have fun hearing the, the funny stories that the author tells, and, and, then, and then we get to the end of it, and we look at life and we realize it's the same. And it can be so much more crippling to, to believe this false gospel that's centered on us, that's centered on our self-esteem, and to not look at what God has said is actually wrong with us. Because that's what we're doing in Genesis chapters 3 through 11, is we are looking at what God has said has gone wrong. And the reason we're doing that is so that we can understand how amazing his grace is, how profound his love is for us, and how incredible it is that God has sent a redeemer that we might find true satisfaction and joy through faith in him. And so that's why we're looking at Genesis chapters 3 through 11. We believe in something called expositional preaching here at J-Town Baptist. And what that means, that, that fancy term for the, the kind of preaching we believe in, is we believe in opening up a book of the Bible and letting God speak to us. We believe that what is most valuable for our time together is to open up a book like Genesis and walk through it verse by verse, section by section, and ask God to speak his words that he's already written for us. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go verse by verse through Genesis chapter 4, looking at the story of Cain and Abel. And, and my prayer is, is that as we do that, we might, with, with Cain, well, not with Cain, actually, look at life differently than he has. You see, Cain, we're going to read in just a moment, looks at, at his life, looks at his offering to God, and looks at God's response to his offering in his life, and is despairing and angry, and, and his face is downcast. And, and God speaks words to him that should cause him to turn towards life. And he doesn't. And my prayer is today that as we look at this story, we might hear what God has to say, not just to Cain, but to you and I. And that we might turn to him and find life. So as you read with me, Genesis chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. And there's, there's five things that I want you to see today from Genesis chapter 4 from this famous story of the first two brothers and the first murder. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Let's, let's pause for just a minute there because there's some things I want you to understand about what Moses is, is, is writing here. When he says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, he's talking about a kind of knowledge that is experiential and intimate in the covenant of marriage and, and that children come out of this experiential intimacy that they enjoy. And look at what Eve says here. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of 
the Lord. And you see, there's kind of the subtle hint of pride in Eve's statement. She's just had her first child, and she's remembering what has just happened in her and Adam's lives. They've both just sinned against God in Genesis 3, rebelled against his wise and good instructions and plans for them, and they've been cast out of the garden, separated by God because of their sin against him, separated from him because of sin. And as they're living in this new reality in a Genesis 3 world, no longer a Genesis 1 and 2 world where everything is very good, but a Genesis 3 world where things have gone very bad, she remembers this promise that God has made. And maybe you remember it from last week, Genesis 3.15, where God promised that though there would be this hostility and this spiritual battle between those who belonged to God and those who followed after the serpent and his ways and sought their own wisdom, though there would be this hostility and this war and this clash and it would be brutal and nasty and long, God promised that he would send an offspring, an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent and who would bring about redemption who would bring about hope, who would bring about life once again and reconciliation to God. And what Eve is thinking here as she has her first child is, is she says, I've gotten a man. I've gotten an offspring. I, I, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You see, so she, she's hopeful in this moment. As she has her, her first child, mothers, maybe you, you can think about this when you had your, your first baby girl, your first baby boy, and how excited you were, thrilled at the gift God had given you, excited for what was to come. And, and Eve in this moment is the same way, but, but Eve has this promise that she remembers God has made, but there's this subtle hint of pride in her statement about it. She says, she, notice she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So see, Eve, Eve remembers this promise, and she, and she begins to, to subtly think that her way towards reconciliation with God, that reconciliation is kind of this equation that means my works are my accomplishments plus God's works, and then reconciliation happens. She begins to think that this is what God's promise meant, that, that she would bring about her redemption through her son with God's help. And we're going to see that, that she's all too devastatingly wrong. And then we're going to see how her faith is transformed at the end of Genesis 4. So, so Eve has her first child, and there's this hint of subtle pride where she's thinking that she can help bring about this redemption. And then we read on, and, and we, talk, we read about Abel, who Abel's name means vapor, or, or kind of this fleeting idea, which is this ominous... Uh, almost prophecy about what's to come. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground, so Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a gardener just like his father was, just like his mother was. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruits of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And so Cain and Abel bring to God their, their gifts, their offerings from what they've made, from what they've done in their occupation, from what they've done in their work week and their work day. They have brought what they think they can offer to God. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and they offer these things up to God. And then we read this. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. You see, we see something here happen where these, these two men bring offerings to God and God has regard for one and no regard for the other. And, and we notice that, that this regard that God has for this offering or, or no regard for the other is not just for the offering. Did you see that? Look with me closely at what it says. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so see, Cain and Abel, their, their, their offerings are not separate, separate, separable from them. As they approach God, God regards or accepts Abel and his gift and he has no regard or he does not accept Cain and his gift. And so we're left wondering, what's in an offering? What's the deal here? What is so different about these two offerings? What is so different about these two men? And I think that's the more important question. You know, some, as they've looked at this passage, they've said, well, well maybe God likes shepherds more than he likes gardeners. But the problem with that is, is that if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God was the one who made Adam and Eve gardeners. And so that can't be it. Well, well maybe it was that God prefers blood sacrifices to fruit or grain offerings. But again, the problem with that is that if we keep reading this book, we see that there are several laws and commands that, that, that tell of how both of these types of offerings can be pleasing to God. And so that can't be our answer as to why God accepts one or the other either. And so some have said, well, well maybe God just arbitrarily chooses to accept Abel and his offering and, and chooses not to, chooses to reject Cain and his well, God is God, so he can do what he wants, right? If God is God, he made all things, he does what he wants when he wants, because he is God and all things belong to him, then God has the right to choose to accept one offering and one man and not the other. He has that right, but I think there's something else that's at play here as well. And the reason that I think that is if you look at Hebrews 11.4 with me, here's what we read in the New Testament about this passage. In this famous hall of faith where the author of Hebrews is talking about the faith of so many saints throughout the ages who have turned from their sin in themselves to God and have worshipped him in faith. Here's what we read about Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
And so the New Testament gives us insight into why God accepts Abel and his offering and not Cain and his. And the insight it gives us is that faith is the reason. Is that Abel had faith where Cain did not. That Abel trusted in, didn't just believe that God existed, but he trusted in God in a way that Cain was not. That he had this relationship with God through his faith, that he had been reconciled to God by grace through faith, as Paul tells us, our salvation comes in the New Testament. That Abel had this kind of relationship with God where he had faith. And so when Abel comes to God, he comes to God with a heart full of faith and offers his gift to God. And it's not that Abel's offering is so amazing. It's not that Abel himself is so amazing. It's that Abel has faith in his God, whereas Cain did not. Genesis 4.4 there tells us that Abel demonstrated that faith by offering the firstborn of his flock and their fat portion. So he did offer to God what, what was most valuable from, from his resources. He gave to God the, the first fruits, the, the firstborn of his flock and the fat portion. So he gave to God what was valuable. And this was how he demonstrated his faith. It wasn't that his, his offering was just better. It was that Abel offered a better offering because he believed in God, because he had faith. In Genesis 4-6, we read about Cain, Cain's response. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So, so in Genesis 4-5, 4, 4, we read that Cain was very angry, his face fell. So, so the kind of response we see here is not someone that wants to be reconciled to God, not someone that wants to be in relationship with God, but someone that is angry at God. Someone that is jealous of others. Someone that reacts in a way that demonstrates where his heart is at. The question is not the offering and which one was better. The question is not the occupation and which one is better. The question is, is not whether God just arbitrarily accepted one or the other. The question is, did this individual have faith? And was their offering, was their worship filled with faith? Did they come to God with a heart transformed by faith in God who brings about redemption? But then we notice this, this phrase here where God says, Cain, if, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And so what is it? We, we just said that it was faith. But then God says, Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted? So is it faith or is it works? Is it, is it faith that matters in our relationship with God or is it what we do? The Bible talks about this, this problem that we have, that we've just seen in Genesis 4 uh, countless times, and, and it explains it this way. The, the scriptures tell us that faith is demonstrated through works. And so when God says to Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted? He, he's not saying that Cain's faith is not the problem, that it's his actions. He's saying that Cain's faith or lack thereof will be demonstrated through his actions and that if he lives righteously out of a faith that makes him in right standing with God, then he will do well. Then he will be accepted. 
The idea here is that, is that faith is demonstrated by good works. And so when we think about this passage and we think about our own worship, what we have to realize is that heartless religious routine doesn't matter before God. It doesn't change your relationship with him in any way, shape, or form. Andrew alluded to this in the offering with talking about our giving, and, and, and what, a, what a better day you, you couldn't find to talk about this idea. That when we offer something to God, when we give something to God in worship, if all we're doing is a religious routine, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything between you and God. But if that act of worship is actually an act of worship, if it comes out of faith in him, if it comes out of a heart that is reconciled to him through that faith by his grace, then it's a celebration of what God has already done then it's a generosity that flows out of God's generosity to us. And it's the same with our songs. When we, when we sing to God, when we gather in this room, when we attend church, when we read our Bibles, when we pray to God, all of these things can be just religious routine if we're not careful. They can be motions that we just go through, much like Cain does as he brings an offering to God. He, just, he brings an offering to God because he thinks that's what he should do. But there's no faith in his heart. There's no transformation that was done by God's grace in him. And, and he comes to God, much like sometimes you and I come into church. We come into a building like this, and we go through the motions. We smile at the right people. We shake their hands. We, we sing together in worship. And, 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 you know, maybe the whole time we're not really engaging. We're just kind of going through it. We're singing the songs. We're sitting through the pastor's sermon. We're, 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 we're acting like we're praying whenever everyone else is praying. And none of that matters to God if you don't believe None of that changes anything between you and him if you don't have faith. See, the way for God to have regard for us and our offering and our worship is faith. The way for us to have a reconciled relationship with him is faith. Here's what Hebrews goes on to say. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so, is your reading of Scripture a genuine, faith-filled attempt to seek God, to grow in your knowledge of him? Is your attendance at church the same thing? Is it, is it a heartfelt desire to seek after God, to know him more in the context of a community of faith with other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, where you're pursuing him together? Is your prayer life, whether it's a brief moment at one point in your day or two hours spent on your knees or on your face, is it a genuine, heartfelt expression of faith and a desire to seek God out and know him more? And if it's not, then you need to ask yourself why you're doing it. And I'm not saying that those things aren't good things, but I'm saying if you're missing the God you're meant to encounter through them, then you're missing the point entirely. 
And God wants to know you. God wants you to know him. God wants to have a reconciled relationship with you, but it comes by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Next, we see uh, that in addition to the necessary role of faith in our worship, we also see that we need to be ruling sin in our lives or sin will be ruling you in verses six and seven. Here's what God says to Cain. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, here's what he says. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So that word for there, like we talked about before, is not just for, it's rather against. Its desire is against you. It wants to conquer you. Its sin is described as a a crouching animal, a, a, a tiger or a lion waiting to devour and so, uh, you know, last week, Brittany and I got to go to the zoo, and this is one of her favorite things and one of my least favorite things in life. Um, <laughs> Jenny's going to kill me. But um, Brittany loves the zoo. And so sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll go with her, and, and we'll look at all the animals and stuff, and she always likes to look at the penguins, and, and we spend a lot of time with the penguins. And then I like, the only thing I like to see is the big cats. I like to see the tigers and the lions and the lepers and the jaguars. And I really just want to see a Black Panther now that I've seen the Marvel movie. But, you know, someday. But the reason I bring this up is because I've had this thought before that, you know, when I'm looking at tigers, like, man, that would be really cool to have a pet tiger. Like, how awesome would it be to be like, you know, I know some of you have cats, but, like, that's a cat, okay? Like the, the little furry thing that makes your eyes water, or at least mine, uh, that you have at home is, is just, you know, it's more like the serpent in the garden than it is the tiger. So Brian's going to hurt me after this. But I, I, I've thought before it would be really cool to have a pet tiger. But here's the reason I don't, is because I would be kidding myself to think that I actually have a pet tiger. See, I don't have a pet if I have a tiger in my home. I have a beast that rules me. And I'm kidding myself if I think that I rule over it. And it's the same thing. You know, we, we think about sin as though it's this cute little pet. It's this thing that we've really got under control. It's this thing that, like, as long as people aren't really bothered by it, then it's not heart, harming anybody, and we can kind of enjoy it a little bit, you know, when we want to. But the way that God describes sin for us, the, way, the words he speaks to us about sin in our lives is as though it is a crouching tiger waiting to pounce and that it, it will rule you if you allow it to continue to dwell there. See, when, when you think about people who have these exotic pets, you, know, you, you always think about the news stories where things went bad. Where, you know little Sabre the tiger all of a sudden isn't little anymore. And just like every day before, you went in, you you petted her and you fed her and gave her water, and then this day, she pounces. And your life's gone like that. That's how sin is. We think that we can pet it, we think that we can feed it a little bit when we want to and, and just kind of enjoy it. And then one day, it's not crouching anymore, it pounces and it rules us. 
See, we think that the videos and the images late at night, that they're not really harming anybody, and that you know, it's just kind of this thing we do from time to time. But then one day we wake up and we realize that there hasn't been a night in the last several weeks or months that we haven't done that. And all of a sudden, intimacy with our spouse is non-existent. All of a sudden, the crouching tiger is pounced, and it rules us. You know, we, we think that, you know, breaking a couple of policies or rules at work is really no big deal. You know, I'm just trying to get ahead a little bit, and, and you know, it, it makes it easier on everyone if we just do it this way. And then one day, we've done that so much, and someone discovers what we've been doing, and we lose our job. See, we're tempted to think that the sin in our lives, whatever it might be for you, we're tempted to think it's a cute little pet until we realize it's a beast that devours us. And whenever we get to that point, it's too late. It's already ruled us. There's no getting back up. But praise God, he sent a redeemer, an offspring that we'll talk about here in just a couple of moments that makes it possible for us to have life again, that makes it possible for us to have freedom from sin, that makes it possible for someone else to rule our lives. See, see there's two options. Either, either you will be ruling sin by entrusting authority and rulership and guidance in your life to Jesus Christ alone and following after him, or sin will be ruling you. There's only two options. Sin rules you or you rule it by entrusting all authority in your life to Jesus Christ, by giving your life over to him and trusting in him for life itself. We also see that God is both just and merciful in the next section, verses 8 through 16, here's what we read. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel and killed him. And so you and I, we read the story of Cain and Abel, and, and we begin to think, it's really, it doesn't matter that much for us because I'm not going to go kill my brother or my sister or my spouse. I would never do that. But you and I, we let anger linger in our hearts. We take vengeance into our own hands as we harbor it towards others, as we withhold forgiveness. We, we seek out, the, just, even if it's just in our heads, the destruction of coworkers that have wronged us or, or family members or friends that have acted towards us in a way that we didn't think was right. We, we want their downfall. We want their destruction if we're honest with ourselves. When we feel wronged, we want someone else to pay the price. And, and we think that Cain and Abel doesn't matter for us. But here's the thing. There was never a murder before this. And so for you and I to, to think that, that we're not capable of this kind of evil, that we're not capable of, about this because we're a pretty good person. I would never do that. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. It's ignorant and foolish to think that we are so great because if you allowed the thoughts of your heart on a daily basis to be played on a screen, not before others, but just before yourself, you would be horrified. If you realized the things that you think and want on a daily basis and how destructive they could be if they ruled you, 
like sin so often does. You see, we think that Cain and Abel is a story that doesn't really matter for us, but in reality, the same things that are in Cain's heart, the same anger that dwelled there, the same jealousy, is in our relationships with our spouses. That same anger is in, uh, that same jealousy is in our relationships with coworkers and friends. When good things happen for them, but not for us. We have the same things dwelling in our hearts, and we let it sit there like it's a pet. And one day, if we continue to let it fester, it's not going to be a pet anymore. It's going to be a crouching tiger that has sprung and devoured us. And, and so Cain and Abel, this story matters for us. Don't let it being about a physical act of violence or murder keep you from thinking that this applies to you. We're in verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And, and, and God doesn't ask questions that he doesn't know the answer to. Like we talked about last week, God asks questions like a good lawyer, lawyer does, attempting to reveal the truth to others, not to gain knowledge of it. God asks this question, where is Abel your brother? Because he knows where Abel is. He knows what has happened. He's, he's pursuing Cain and giving Cain an opportunity to respond. And how often does God do this in our lives where he calls out to us and he asks questions of us and he wants us to turn towards him and all we do is mock him just like Cain does here. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He makes a sarcastic joke to God saying, am I the shepherd's protector? Am I the shepherd's keeper? Isn't that what he does for a job? He mocks God when God attempts to pursue him and call him to himself. And you and I, we do the same thing on a daily basis. This is why we need Christ. This is why we need the promised offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, who would renew what has gone wrong in us. We read on, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. Before in Genesis 3, we we read that the serpent was cursed, but not Adam and Eve. They experienced consequences of the fall, but that language of of curse, of cursing, was not applied to them. They experienced consequences for their sin, but they weren't cursed. And here we read that Cain, Cain is cursed just like the serpent was, which shows us which line he's following after, that he is offspring of the serpent, following after the ways of the serpent and seeking his own wisdom in life. The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Here we, we see something in, incredibly devastating in, in Cain's response. God, God once again, is, is calling out to him, saying, Cain, I know what you've done. Your brother's blood calls out to me. It cries out to me. 
And there's consequences for this. And, and the way Cain responds is not with remorse, not with repentance, not with a desire to pursue God and turn towards him in his ways, but instead he, he continues on his own way. You see, Cain is not concerned with repentance here. He's concerned with consequences. He's concerned that he's been driven away from the ground, from his livelihood. He's worried about his job and his work and his resources. And then we see, you know, from your face I shall be hidden, which tempts us to think that maybe Cain is getting it. Maybe he's beginning to see that his sin has separated him from God and that he needs to be reconciled. He, he, he says, your face has been hidden from me. But what we discover when he says, whoever finds me will kill me, is that, is that Cain isn't really concerned about his relationship with God. He's concerned about God's protection and blessing. See, Cain is concerned with the consequences of his sin rather than with God and godliness. He's not repentant here. He's only concerned about being found out. See, this is the difference. The Bible talks about the difference between worldly grief and sorrow and godly grief and sorrow, where worldly grief or sorrow is concerned with the consequences of sin, with being found out, but not with God and godliness. See, we're concerned with, with how being discovered will affect our marriage and our family life, our, our home life, and how unpleasant that might make it for us, but we're not concerned about being a godly spouse again. We're, we're concerned with whether or not we might lose a job or, or go to prison or, or experience financial consequences, but, but we're not concerned with the, the people that we've wronged or the God that we are sinning against. So often in life, we are concerned. The only thing we care about regarding sin is its consequences, not actual repentance. We're, we're sad that we've been found out. We're sad that there's consequences, but we're not remorseful and repentant in the sense that we want to turn from our own ways towards God and his. Most of the time, we don't want God. We just want his blessings. We just want his protection. We don't want him. And his blessing and protection are not separated from him. God, God responds with both justice and mercy to Cain. He, he sends Cain out of his presence. And then we read, And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And so Cain's concern was that he was going to die. And God says, No, I'm going I'm to send you out of my presence. You, you can't be in my presence when you're dwelling in sin, when you're living in sin and pursuing it rather than me. You're, you're of the evil one. You're not of me. And so you can't live in my presence. And he, he shows and demonstrates his justice. But then Cain is concerned for his life, and God shows mercy. He places this mark on Cain. We don't, we don't know what the mark was. You know, some think maybe it was some kind of tattoo that, that let people know that God's protection was on this man, that, that, that whoever harmed this man would have to reckon with God himself. And, and, and this is not teaching us, this mark doesn't teach us that Cain was a repentant believer. It teaches us that God is merciful to those who don't deserve it. In, in 1 John 3, we read this about Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so Cain is of the evil one's line. He's of the offspring of the serpent. 
he's been rejected because his evil deeds reflect his evil heart. The mark is not evidence of Cain's repentance, but of God's abundant mercy to those who deserve it least. In the next section, we see that, that pride continues to breed rebellion, and further rebellion breeds further pride. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And so, and so we have to pause and, and talk about that for a moment. Cain knew his wife. Where did he get a wife from? They're the first two brothers. And so some of you have been waiting for us to talk about this question, so let's talk about it for just a second. Where in the world would Cain have gotten a wife? There was Adam and Eve, and then they had Cain and Abel, and the, the, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot else. Until we get here, Cain's worried about people killing him, and then he has a wife, and all of a sudden we're like, where'd the wife come from, and where are these people coming from that would potentially kill him? So there's a number of ways that people have explained this. Some commentators point, to, point out that Genesis is telling history in a different way than you, or, you and I would in a modern context. It's, it's telling history in, in a way that is, is highlighting certain pieces and, and not concerned with giving you all the details of how things fleshed out. And so some, some would appeal to that, to that and say that the, the passage just isn't really concerned with where he got his wife, and they're right about that part. And some would say that God, when God made mankind in Genesis chapter 1, he didn't just make two, he made many men and women, and then he, he elected God, Adam and Eve as his representatives for the human race, and so that there would have been, by this time, many human beings across the face of the earth, and that Cain would have married one of those women. But many believe, and I think this is probably the, the best explanation, is that at, at the beginning of human history, if you just think about this, if it started with two, then the only logical conclusion is that Cain married a sister. And that at the beginning of human history, when things are kicking off, that there weren't as many problems with that. The, and God had not yet forbid it in his, in his word yet. And so the, most people think that, that this is the best ex- explanation, that Cain married a sibling, and that at this time in human history, because there weren't other options, that this was an acceptable thing to do, and that later, once the human race had grown, God then forbid it because it was no longer necessary. And so that's where a, a lot of people land. If you land in a different spot, totally fine. Um, but those are the different ways that people have explained it, and I'm sure there's many others that we don't have time to jump into, but those are some ideas to help you think through where Cain's wife came from. Here's what we read about the progression of pride and rebellion and the line of Cain and the serpent. Cain builds this city, and, and he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, Irad fathered Mahujal, Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech's so much easier than those other ones. <laughs> There's this progression of, of, this, of this wicked line that's rebelled against God. And there's seven different generations listed in these verses in 17 through 24. If you read them closely, there's no mention of God or God giving children. 
And so that, that highlights that this is not a godly lion, but a wicked lion that's in rebellion against God. Then we see that Cain builds this city. He names it after his own son, which shows that Cain is rebelling against God's consequences for him to be a wanderer on the earth. He's building his own city, which would likely have had walls, so he's protecting himself rather than trusting in God's protection, as evidenced by the mark he placed on Cain. So he's continuing to rebel against God in his own pride. He names the city after his own son, showing that he's further concerned with himself. And, and this, this prideful line continues to go forward, and it culminates in Lamech. And Lamech is this man who took two wives. So he's this man who, who just takes what he wants. He takes multiple wives to indulge his his flesh and his lust. And then here's how he treats these wives. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. And so, so he's commanding them to listen to him. He, he has this very domineering attitude towards his wives that he has multiple of. And so he's rebelling against God. He has a domineering uh, spirit and attitude. And, and then he, he, he's also a, a vengeance-filled man. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for simply striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so Lamech is, is this man that instead of, instead of trusting in God who brings about sevenfold justice, which is complete or total or perfect justice, he takes justice into his own hands and it becomes vengeance. And he has a vengeance that is 77-fold or it's overflowing. It's abundant. He's abundant in wickedness, in vengeance. He, instead of the, him trusting in God's total justice, he takes things into his own hands with an overflowing vengeance, and he strikes people down for their offenses against him. And so the question is, do you walk in, in humility and forgiveness, or do you walk like Lamech in pride and vengeance? See, that 77-fold should remind us of something that Jesus said in the New Testament. When, when, when the disciples come to Jesus and ask, oh, Lord, Lord how, how often should I forgive? Jesus responds, not, not seven times, but 77 times. So the contrast here is that the, the wicked line of the serpent has this abundant anger and vengeance. And, and then the line, the, those who follow after God, those who understand what God has done for us, that forgiveness is abundant from them because they've been abundantly forgiven. And we read about this godly lion and, and God's continued fulfillment of his promises in 25 and 26. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, which sounds like the Hebrew for he appointed. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so do you see how Eve's attitude has changed? She no longer has any pride with her faith in God and what he's doing. She humbly acknowledges that God is the one who brings about redemption, that God is the one who has promised an offspring, and that she plays no part in this other than to receive the gift that God gives, that God has given her another son in place of the one that she's lost. 
and that God is bringing about the promised redemption through the offspring that he brings and that he gives. To Seth also a son was born, his name was called Enosh. And listen to this last phrase in Genesis 4 because there's so much hope here. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so Eve's faith is is transformed. There's no pride left in it. There's this humble acceptance of God's gift. And at that time, people, when they're seeing all this evil around them, all this brokenness in their lives, they began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to worship and to pray and to ask God to move because they needed him. And so... Are you like Cain or are you like Abel? Are you of the line of Adam and Seth and Jesus Christ, the offspring that was promised? Or are you of the evil one? Are you following after your own ways and your own wisdom? The way that we know the difference is if you have faith in Jesus Christ, And that faith overflows into love for others. And so two questions I'll leave you with. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And do you love those around you because you've been loved by God? Let's pray. Father, we are in such desperate need of you. We're thankful this morning that that you do not leave us in our sin, that you have promised a redeemer, and that redeemer has come, your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would help us today to trust in him. You would help us to respond in faith, and that faith would be demonstrated in our lives through change, through new actions, through love and forgiveness. God, we thank you that forgiveness and reconciliation are available through your son in whose name that we pray, amen.